Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome one and all to Be Real. Guys, my name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And every week, pretty much every week, we gather to discuss trios of movies of a similar genre, a genre of our choosing. Noah, how would you describe what we've selected for this, our 40th episode? For our 40th uh, episode, we have chosen movies that are bad. Yeah, we figured, why why bring you this, you know, four-tiered rating system? Why spend our time on good movies? Let's just get to, like, the bad movies, right? Right. Next week, maybe we can do good movies. Uh, good Shepherd, Good Will Hunting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm blanking on a third good movie. All the good the good, the bad its entirety. And, the good, bad, and the ugly? Sure, that'd be fun. Good movies would be fun. We already did Good Will Hunting, didn't we? We have not. Oh, wait, we did Finding Forrester, which is basically the same thing. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, yeah, maybe we could do that. Um, But, no, these are are bad movies with bad in the title. Bad modifying a a noun is what's going on here. Um, In this episode, we're going to be talking about the new film Bad Moms. We'll be talking about the 2002 Joel Schumacher movie Bad Company. We're going to be talking about the 1992 uh, Harvey Keitel vehicle Bad Lieutenant. Uh, other ones people might know that were sort of in contention. Bad Teacher, Bad Grandpa. We've already done Bad Santa. Um, no, what do you sort of, before we dive in, what do you kind of like make of this genre that we've created here? You know, well, it's sort of, it's taking a thing and showing a version of it that is not good. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like they're like really sort of simple premises in that way, especially like kind of where comedy is concerned. Anyway, I think what all these movies are sort of arguing um and like especially what some of those like comedies that we left out are arguing is that is actually they're they're sort of arguing on behalf of like a little bad goodness in a vocational sense that like some of these sure these positions in our society and we'll talk about this especially with bad moms uh, have become sort of like stuffy and demanding and that like naughtiness can kind of be a virtue on the way to on the way to learning moderation right and it's funny too and i would never thought i'd say this but there are like weirdly a lot of parallels between uh bad moms and 1992's bad lieutenant <laughs> You mean like the sheer amount of uh, consumption? The sheer amount of consumption, um, the just the depiction of penises. What uh, goes wrong when you drop after you drop your kids off at school? Right. Uh, well, why don't we start with Bad Moms, which just came out a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Before we get into Bad Moms, Chance. Uh, so Sarah, your girlfriend, uh, is a closeted Milo Kunis fan. I've heard. That's what she said, uh, which surprised me. I think it it's, comes from a That 70s Show fanship. Got it. So, and you just told me before we started recording that you were helping uh, her 
unload the groceries, which leads me to believe that you're still dating this person after such a revelation <laughs> came to light. It's true. It's true. I am. What a, uh, you know, relationships are about compromise and understanding. Yeah. And yeah. God love you for that. Cause I certainly couldn't abide that. <laughs> well, I saw this movie with Sarah um, and you saw this movie with your mom. Did you not? With my mom and my 14 year old brother, Nate. What were their reactions? Um, there was definitely was such a weird movie to watch because it, it it just operates in such a a level of like female crassness that yes. it was just so uncomfortable for me to like you know like in the scene that comes to mind and we can get into the synopsis in a second uh, but the scene that comes to mind is um, when the one woman, the real uh, wild card group, uh, participant in the group, uh, explains how to uh, give fellatio to a man with an uncircumcised penis while using another oh, yes. one of the, the cast members' <laughs> hoodies while it's on them to explain what to do with the abundance of uh, additional skin at the tip of the penis. Uh, <laughs> and well that, was, that was like a, a minute and a half uh, on par with like watching some girls episodes with my mother. Sure. Um, but yeah, and my mother and I had a strikingly different reaction to this film. Yeah. So, but let's get into it. Uh, do you want me to synopsize big cat? Why don't you? Yeah. Go for it. I'll jump in. Okay. So we have one of the, uh, the titular mom Mm. is, uh, Myla Kunis who has, these two kids and they go to school and they do school stuff. And she like works part time at this coffee company from the guy, uh, run by the guy from, uh, hot tub time machine and not much else. Right. And they Um, live in the suburbs of Chicago and they live in the suburbs of Chicago. So it's, there's that wink to like John Hughes movies. Yes. Um, and she's like a good mom kind of, but she's always late and like the kids kind of hate her. And then she's also got this husband who doesn't appear like weirdly until the second act of this movie. Um, who's like a deadbeat and he's like a day trader, like a real estate or something. It's, it's, but he makes enough money for them to live comfortably. While being just an infant in a 40 year old's body. Right. And then like, there's this altercation with, um, with Christina Applegate, who's the the leader of the PTA in a PTA that has like this weirdly sort of uh, like fascist <laughs> control over the school. Right. And then she discovers her husband is like cheating on her with an internet person. And she decides that she's not going to be a good mom anymore. She's going to be a bad mom. She's had it. She's had oh. it. She's had enough. So then the rest of the movie is her, it's like a series of montages of her being a bad mom. And then she decides that she's going to run for the PTA president so she can like right all the wrongs that's been done to her kids, like the other kids in the school. And then there's like a love thing with like a a widower father. Yeah. Yeah. There's a a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Um, But also very little. It's true. The question really is like, what what should a what should a mom do? Well, a mom should probably not do their children's entire uh, science and history projects, but a mom sure. should also probably not binge drink and not work for weeks at a time. So like right. we end up landing in the middle of those two things. 
Well, I think it has to show us these sort of two extremes in order to land sort of safely and diplomatically in the middle. Here comes Amy. Just don't know how you leave your kids all day and go to work. Oh, yeah, but I also need things like money. Right. Oh. I'll see you guys later. Just love how hard she works. Such a hard worker. I just said that, Vicky. Got four minutes to get Roscoe to the vet, which should be fine. You're super late for your marketing meeting. I can't believe I'm gonna be late to my first soccer practice. You having a bad day? It could not get any worse. What? Damn. <laughs> So my mom loved this movie. Okay. Just loved it. Uh-huh. She, my mom hates everything. And she walked out of this movie going, I just loved that. Wow. So I think we need to check the fact that this movie was not made for you or I, Chance. This True. movie was made for moms who feel as though they are underappreciated. Their jobs are... Uh, you know, they're not given the true sort of recognition they deserve. Right. It is not made for two millennial boys who <laughs> spend their times recording podcasts for the entertainment of dozens. Right. It's not made for the kind of people who'd watch Bad Moms and Bad Lieutenant in the same weekend. It certainly is not. Or that he would even think about watching Bad Moms or Bad Lieutenant in the same weekend. <laughs> Yeah, my theater was full of, and I guess I don't want to make light of this, like the statement you're making is important. My theater on a Friday night at uh, a mall movie theater was 90% women between the ages of 30 and 45. Like, it showed in the audience too. Um, I think we're about to sort of say a lot about what's wrong with this movie. So maybe if I can sort of read what the moms liked about it, I think... Even though this movie is sort of made like one big montage, and I think right. directed rather poorly in that way, um, the one the thing that it gets across really well in the first fifteen minutes is that Mila Kunis is stressed out, and yeah. this is overwhelming, and she does not deserve this. And I think no matter what you think of Mila Kunis's performance or if you think they're actually bad moms, or if you think they're good moms, you sort of understand that that stress, and you need to for the rest of the movie. Like, even in the sappiest moments, some of the moms in the theater were like, yeah, like, you tell it, because I think you understand that her lot is undeserving. Oh, absolutely. But I think the the way in which the exposition is done with that lazy voiceover. Oh, very lazy. That and never these, appears like, again. Lazy montages using like hyperbolic imagery of like her literally, you know, getting pasta and coffee all over herself and like yeah. that huge Richard Nixon thing that she's constructed with paper mache, even though you've like seen her, she's, you've never seen her actually work on it. It just sort of, these, these weird things that just sort of appear. Mm-hmm. And these weird sort of plot devices that just sort of land. And you're like, where did that come from? Because it's always, like, what I had trouble buying into about Mila Kunis's character was the fact that, like, she's clearly, like, very wealthy. Like, no matter how yes. you slice it, she's still, like, <laughs> working part-time. And it's basically the, the conflict is between her upper-middle-class motherhood Versus, like, a 1% mom who owns, like, five boats, she says by the end. Exactly. She's still driving a $50,000 car in a $500,000 house. Right. 
And yeah, and she's still like working part time. It's not like she is a full time mom and a full time employee. Not to say that there isn't like that, that being a full time mom isn't a job in itself, but this movie is clearly like directed at upper middle class moms, right? Yes, agree. This is not a mom who's working, you know, two full time jobs just to put food on the table. This is a mom who just doesn't have time to like go to yoga and brunch. And, like, go to the spa. Because then when you cut to those scenes of her, like, at her leisure, that's what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think what we're talking about, and I, didn't, I don't know if I wanted to get into the politics of it quite as early, but hopefully we can intermingle, is that I just... I think what's ultimately good about this movie is it is a comedy that stars exclusively women, including some really funny women in Kristen Bell and Katherine Hahn, who I think have not gotten their due on the big screen before and actually get to do some like pretty decent work here. Um, sure. But I think this is a movie that I just wish would have come out 20 years ago. I think it would have spoken to people louder. I think uh, you could be more forgiving for the fact that there is only like one mom of color in the movie and that's Jada Pinkett Smith and she's barely allowed to speak. Um, I think that even sort of like Catherine Hahn is supposed to be like sort of like the trashy mom, but like she also seems, she doesn't seem to have any trouble like financial problems at all like this is a movie that's like heard like had has one specific kind of um political concern on its mind and that's just like white upper class moms absolutely and i mean there's that whole funny montage or that funny scene where they're like talking about like the different moms in the school and they name all these kinds of moms like lesbian moms and divorced moms and um, you know, moms of color, but you don't really see any of them ever, except for yeah. like in these wide shots of them partying unrealistically. Yeah. That it's hard yeah. to sort of, yeah. I mean, it definitely has like this very like working girl, like late eighties, early nineties feminism about it. Yes. That it's like, it's, it's very tempered, like white feminism. And I think another, how about this also? I think this movie could have been so much braver so much more easily if it didn't star Mila Kunis. Um, yeah. Because Mila Kunis is 30 and she looks like a supermodel. Like right. I want to I see the version of this movie where like Kristen Bell is the star. Or maybe where Christina Applegate gets the Mila Kunis role. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been more edgy or, yeah, just someone who's not known as, like, she's, like, has not been on the cover of Maxim or something. Right. Like, that would be sort of interesting, too. And that's the thing that troubles me about the movie, too, is that everyone save for the, like, punching bag uh, participant of, like, the the snobby moms, Mm -hmm. everyone that is on screen, men and women, are strikingly beautiful. It's true. Like, it's even true. when Milo Kunis is covered with pasta and coffee, and people are like, wow, it looks like you've had a bad day. J.J. Watt says, looks like you've had a bad day. <laughs> the best defensive football player of the last, of this century, probably, is in this movie. Just Right. And he says, it looks like you've had a bad day. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. She, her makeup is still immaculate. Her hair is perfect. Like, the... the it goes for this sort of like realism, this broad comedy realism that like never quite, I don't know. I just never felt like it was an authentic 
it, it felt amateurish, the production. I mean, it was also made by John Lucas and Scott Moore. It was just made by two white dudes. Right. Um, maybe, just maybe a woman could make this movie. If that well, that's the question, too. Like, why, to was this, why was this not a more subversive movie made by a more independent filmmaker with more independent financing? Yeah. Like, it could have been, like, on the level of... Like, if it had had the same sort of tack as, like, a Little Miss Sunshine or that kind of thing, I think it could have been sort of brilliant. I guess that is what positions it, though, in this genre that we've chosen today. Like, it could be a much smarter movie, but instead it is one of these bad movies in its simplicity. Um, Well, that's, like, the thing that we'll talk about with the other movies is, like, we don't... It's not skewering enough of the good mom movie. Mm-hmm. It's not taking that sort of John Hughesian sort of like it's not taking Catherine O'Hara's um, mom from Home Alone and like skewering that enough. I mean, a movie that has bad in front of it, like Bad Santa. You know, this is everything you've seen in like a holiday movie that we're yeah. gonna spoof. Yeah, they're only in conversation on the level of movies. It was it was just interesting. It felt like the. The best parts of this movie were all Catherine Hahn and Kristen Bell doing rhythm jokes where right. like one of them would say like make a list of something and then one of them who's just sort of like hopelessly almost like enslaved by her family and one who is like sexually lashing out against the world will like hit you with the third line. Kristen right. Bell ha- had a really funny line where um, uh, I thought she was wa- where she's walking away from the hot widow and she says I really love your clothes. <laughs> so like the best lines in the movie were these like side things but the movie gave them the least attention it didn't give comedic attention where it was due but i wanted more like depth to the people because it was so easily like just everyone around mila kunis was so easily villainized because they were so two-dimensional yeah sounds like you thought that this bad movie uh might have been bad bad I'm so torn though, because I yeah. know that I know that Nancy's gonna be so mad at me if I if I give it a bad bad. Haven't you already talked to her about it though? I have. Well, I was sort of cagey with my response to it because she just loved it. Wow. And I'm just I've just been racking my brain for the past two days of like what was good, like what can I, and I just don't have anything. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love you, mom, and. I hope that you know that I appreciate you and all the sacrifices you have made uh, to raise me and my my young brother, Nate. But this movie, I'm sorry to say, is bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to appreciate it as well. But it's such sort of like a like a stopgap movie when we've already seen something like Bridesmaids. And I think it sucks that Bridesmaids or like a version of that or, or like... Right, like that takes the wedding movie and like turns it on its ear and like does something original and unique. And this movie could have done, it could have been the PTA version of Bridesmaids and it just went for like the easy jokes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, let's, give me another version that's not written by the guys who made The Hangover, um, but, or who wrote The Hangover. But yeah, oh, probably. Probably a bad, bad for me, too. Good. All right. Um, 
let's get to bad company, shall we? I would love that. I would love nothing more. Um, so the 2002 Joel Schumacher movie, which Noah texted me, um, in agony, at least at the beginning, and said, like, imagine face-off, but, like, explained in a rational way. That's kind of the way, the way into was this that, movie. You think that was apt? I think it was pretty apt. Um, I liked it. So this movie begins in Prague with Chris Rock playing a, a, a serious, at least for, like, a few moments. He's playing this antique dealer with Anthony Hopkins from the CIA, and they're making a deal with Peter Stormare. Um, to acquire a nuke um, to make sure... A suitcase nuke. A suitcase nuke, yeah. It's just to get it out of the wrong hands. Um, That deal goes bad, and in this very sort of like traditional like aughts espionage sequence, uh, Chris Rock's character ends up dead. Um, So he's dead. Yeah. Well, that was like the best part about the movie is like the 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 lead person dies. In the I was first, very confused. I was like not the first three that. minutes of the movie, he's dead. He's super dead, and yep. you're like, where can they possibly go with this movie? <laughs> what if he had a twin? Oh, there uh, it is. Yeah, and he does. Uh, played Thank also God. by Chris Rock, of course, um, who runs like a ticket scalping business that seems sort of successful in a local context and just <laughs> in a owning, Jersey city context. Yeah, yeah. Owning chumps at chess in the park. And, um, the CIA knows that their only move to get back to storm air and acquire this nuke that they didn't acquire because the deal went South the first time. Um, or no, there was like a waiting period. Um, is right. To, they they is, have like nine days to receive a phone call or something to actually yeah. do the deal. And then like a rival, gang or something was the one who actually assassinated uh first chris rock yeah so they need to like train and make it seem like second chris rock is first chris rock so peter stormare is convinced because he's the one who knows him and he's brokering the nuke deal even though they're all working in the cia yeah it's very straightforward Yes, so then what you have after that is a very straightforward sort of lifestyle misunderstanding comedy where this um you know, 2002 hip hop loving, basketball loving Jersey City resident has to be transformed in a matter of days into a tailored suit wearing classical music, uh, European sophisticated man with the same <laughs> face. <laughs> right. Um, He's got it, the same face. That's important <laughs> to keep in mind. Yeah. Jacob Hayes, I'm Officer Oaks. CIA for scalping tickets. We need your help, Mr. Hayes. Just before he was killed, your brother was working on something with us. My twin brother was CIA? Yeah, he was. So we need you to stand in for him. How much? Throw out a number. $50,000. Tax-free. $25,000. Unless my mother had triplets, you're going to give me $50,000. The surprising thing about this movie that I thought was a good thing, but I think ultimately made it not great for me was that it looks very sleek it's surprisingly super sleek sleek. action um because schumacher can do this i was i was not surprised when i was looking at his uh his recent imdb that one of the most recent things he did was a couple episodes of house and car house of cards because he's totally up to that in like a visual sense as silly as his as his movies tend to be but i think the problem is that every element of this movie 
save Chris Rock has the straightest face in the world. And that results in it like being pretty boring because a lot of time is spent with this sort of like conspiracy of the insertion of like Afghan gangs to acquire this rogue nuke. I don't care about any of that. Right. And then Chris Rock is sort of sidelined to make jokes about J-Lo and Shaquille O'Neal and just sort of like period jokes. Right. Yeah, this movie, I mean, this is what I love about this kind of movie is because you can like see the development of it and you know someone just said they pitched it as Trading Places meets Jason Bourne. Yep. And that's what it is. That's what it is. And if you like a comedy of... Uh, Chris Rock's, or if you like the uh, a movie, an action comedy of Chris Rock's humor juxtaposed onto Anthony Hopkins, like no bullshit acting chops, then like you're gonna be amused, I think, for the duration of this film. But yeah, like you never really buy into the stakes of the movie, and that's the thing. If you kill the protagonist in the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> It's hard to then like rebuy into another protagonist to I just found that the the conceit of the movie was so ridiculous that Well yeah, you don't know what the identity switch is for in an emotional sense. Right. And then we spend a whole bunch of time with it. Right. And that's the thing too, is like you don't get because he's already like faking Peter Stormare out that he is someone else. So, like, that's that weird moment that they have, right, where they're training him and he's like, so wait, I'm this guy, I'm my brother, but I'm also playing another guy. Yeah. And this movie just has, like, everyone in it. Oh, baby John Slattery, baby Carrie Washington. Uh, baby Gabriel Mocked, who then uh, is now, like, the, the lead on <laughs> USA's Suits. <laughs> that's right. I don't know, man. I I think it's supposed to be like one of these, and this is how it was sort of received. Like I know when Siskel and Ebert talked about it, they were sort of exhausted with kind of like the the odd couple, um, the odd couple pairing of of Rock and Hopkins. But the think the weird thing about the movie is like they're not really partners, right? Um, He's like his boss. Just constantly. Yeah, he constantly sends Chris Rock into the field and sits in another room and watches him. I think the only enjoyment Anthony Hopkins gets out of this movie is, like, he just really likes saying people's names, if you right. notice that. Like, that's when he gets to exercise his chops. In the opening scene where he introduces second Chris Rock to the crew, he's just relishing and being like, and this is Officer Carew, and this is Officer... And he just, like, oh, he really loves Carew. much longer than he should have. Yes. Yeah, he names all these, like, very Anglo-Saxon names, that, and he is Officer Carew. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, I definitely did. But he also likes his, his his real big acting choice in this movie is like like leaning in chairs with his tie askew. Like that's his big like <laughs> his big set piece choice is like just being frustrated and leaning. But were you bored with this movie? I was pretty bored. I I was pretty bored. Like. By the end of it, when they like bring in Kerry Washington, oh yeah, like I didn't that think so... that needed to happen. But like leading up to that, like I thought it was the action sequences were pretty amusing, and I, th- I thought like the banter back and forth, like wow, like a little bit two thousand two racist, um, you know, it was amusing enough, right? <sighs> 
think it's counterintuitive, but I think the production value was too good. Like I needed more comedy in the like in the action. What you're saying is it the was action too was good. Too serious. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which made it in turn bad. Yeah. You did like it. You were pleasantly I didn't, surprised. I didn't like it like it. <laughs> I, I I was pleasantly surprised with how like smart it was how smart it was made like i thought Uh that the action was pretty decent for like a pretty flimsy setup and a pretty flimsy storyline i mean like just put storm mayor in as the bad guy you know you got hopkins there with his disheveled tie and then you got but didn't you chris rock doing his doing his thing but didn't you feel like Stormare should have been the big bad? Like the entrance of those other people was just nonsense. Well, that's where where the movie turned, and I was just like, "Oh, there's another twenty minutes, isn't there?" Yeah. And then I like there was. And I put my mouse over the screen, and in fact, there was another twenty minutes. <laughs> and I was like, "Okay," uh, but I think ultimately where I'm going to land is uh, is bad good. Uh huh. I think it was. I think if you're looking for a dumb, like afternoon action movie, and if you're looking, maybe it would be a little bit better if they cut a few sections out and just threw it up there on TNT. Uh, yeah. I think. I think it's. I think this is pretty. It's a soft bad good, but a bad good nonetheless. Mm. It's gonna be a bad bad for me. Oh no shit. Yeah, the title doesn't, and this is funny because we were texting about, I will kind of ride for other Joel Schumacher movies, including but not limited to Batman Forever. And that's the Uh, thing I hate about you most. (laughs) No, I really rubbed it out the wrong way. I don't Uh, like that at all. (laughs) But this one, this one I'm I'm not interested. I mean, I'm glad that Joel... Phantom of the Opera aside, this one's garbage. (laughs) The age of 65 was still making two major motion pictures a year. This came out the same year as Phone Booth. Phone Um, Booth is a great movie. I wouldn't say great, but it's interesting. So let's talk about, since these are movies that are bad, Mm -hmm. what does the title have to do with anything in this film? It makes very little sense. I think it's, is it supposed to be like a play on sort of like, you know, the company you keep? Like if you keep bad company, like you're bound to get into trouble. But who is the titular bad? I think the CIA. They're the bad company? Yes, like they end up being trouble for this random man. But then they don't in the end. But the movie's weirdly rooting for the CIA over Chris Rock, I would say. Like Chris Rock is sort of a foil to the protagonist. I I feel like Anthony Hopkins is weirdly the protagonist of this movie. Which is one of its major, major problems. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it to you there. But it's amusing to watch like the, the movie think that Anthony Hopkins is the protagonist when really it's Chris Rock. <laughs> so, but I think that that's the reason. That, yeah, I guess that's the title right there. All right. Our last film in this bad trio is 1992's Bad Lieutenant. Not Bad Lieutenant Portal Call New Orleans, but the OG Directed by Abel Ferrara, starring Harvey Keitel. The, uh, yeah, the preeminent uh, Harvey Keitel penis picture of its time. What were you expecting from this movie, Noah? Not the guttural noises he makes on the floor of that church, I tell you that. No. This was, uh... Oh! 
And then he makes more of them later. I make so many guttural noises. I was reading the IMDb trivia for this movie, and the original person they had slated to play the titular bad lieutenant was Christopher Walken, and this was supposed to be a comedy. No. Yes, it's on there. How? It's tough to say. There's a quote by the director who says, like, yeah, we really wanted Chris to do it. And it was going to be a comedy. And then we cast Harvey and wow. Yeah. So So, (laughs) this is a movie that is essentially a New York cop dropping his kids off at school and then going on a four day bender mixed with a sexual nightmare. Kind of, um, yeah. It opens, and you see him like yelling at his kids because they're late for school, and you sort of get that he is sort of like this picture, or this picture portrait of like a sort of a cruel like policeman father, right? And then, as soon as the kids get out of the car, juxtaposed with a shot of rosary beads hanging from the rearview mirror, he immediately starts doing coke, and right. you start to see what a bad lieutenant he is. Um, as he also gets into incredible gambling debt over sort of a fictionalized version of the 88 NLCS between the Dodgers and the Mets. Um, he gets into worse debt, like each game of the series. And so he keeps betting more. He keeps doubling his doubling down his bet to try to win back all the money and then more and then ends up like nearly a quarter million dollars in debt. Yes. Um, doing every drug on the black market. Oh yeah. Um, and then Save in for the middle of pot. it, he never smokes pot in the movie. Well, right. That's dangerous. Right. And um, he never smokes cigarettes either. Like I thought that was super interesting. Interesting point. Interesting point. And he does have um, limits. Yes. Well, you've got to keep that, that taut bod. Uh, oh my God. He's somehow. so taut. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of like disgustingly Jack. He is rock hard. In like an old man way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then in the middle of this, the most horrific crime, uh, one of the more horrific crimes I've seen portrayed on screen, um, two men end up raping a nun in a Catholic church and then like defacing uh, the altar. While living church. Jesus watches. Yes. Uh, from the cross, my dear. From the cross, like back in, you know, zero AD. <laughs> Not like standing somewhere else on the cross. No, he's on the cross just like watching and being very upset. J. Scott of the Toronto Globe and Mail claims every so often the limits of screen acting are redefined and expanded. Harvey Keitel has given the kind of performance a generation is defined by. Love in I mean, a lot of this movie is uncalled for. And it's depraved. It's so... De- I mean, what we're describing is one of the least watchable short movies I've ever seen. Yeah, it's only like a, it's only like 75 minutes long. Yeah. And it's just horrifying, the depths of this man's misdeeds. Oh, yes. He has sinned. But he atones for those sins at the end, sort of. Well, that's the weird thing. This is sort of... If I could place this movie... So it's made by, like, a 
and like an exploitation, like B movie director right. and Abel Ferrara. But what happens is it it ends up on like the extended family tree branch of those seventies Scorsese movies. Right, which Scorsese is said it like was a, his favorite movie of the nineties. It's a, like a machismo tragedy, basically. Right. Um, and in here, there's like a very dark movie about hopelessness and self-absolution. Right. Well, it's about loss of faith, I think. Because that's sort of... I mean, I was trying to piece together when watching this movie, like, what was the catalyst for this behavior? Like, how did he become a lieutenant and then, like... Because it, it seems like this is relatively new, right? This 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 streak? Yeah, this streak. Of behavior. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he seems it's like... very unclear about his home life. Right. And there's that old Where woman who's, like, kids, watching him. Where he has kids, if they him. are his kids. Yeah, there's that... Who's that old woman watching him, like, nap? No idea. Interesting. His mom? Mom? Um, but yeah, I, I get this sense from the end. The, the, his question, his quest was, was a loss of faith. And without mm-hmm. faith and without thinking that there is something to do after this life, that he's just like, fuck it. And I'm just going to cruise along. Because I have no redeemer and I have no one to answer to on the other side of this. And then he slowly pieces together that maybe he does in that harrowing scene in the church when he talks to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then his final choice at the end is sort of like that. I just, it's just the, it's the world. It's one of these like dirty New York movies. Like New York is, New York is the antagonist. The filthiest. But much like in Taxi Driver, like New York is the villain of this film. Absolutely. And so to, you know, bring the culprits of this horrible rape to justice, what he ends up doing is just telling them to leave town, which is so interesting. So I guess what we're describing, though, is sort of, it's such a difficult movie that I don't think I would recommend anyone watch unless they were sort of morbidly curious. But if you hang with it long enough, you can... It has a specific psychological place in mind that it's trying to take you to. And, like, in that way, it achieves a goal that it's setting for itself. Right. Like, it... Yeah. It's definitely mood over material here. That's true. Where it's just sort of setting up this, like, pre-Giuliani New York. Uh, Things are very gritty. Things are very dirty. There's, like, like, this corrupt police. And it's the same police department that we'll then see in, like, the usual suspects of, like, the uh, New York's finest um, Mm, uh, taxi taxi service. service, Right. You know, it's that sort of New York that we're dealing with here. And the idea of forgiveness, you know, how do we forgive other people and why do we forgive other people and should we, you know, and ultimately like the big, I think the sort of sledgehammer that falls down at the end is that you may be able to forgive other people and you may be able to forgive yourself, but New York City is not going to fucking forgive you. (laughs) Like this city remembers like what you've done to it and there are these seemingly... It's seemingly trying to reconcile these uh, random acts of violence to say that there is a bigger sort of, you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings in China, like there's a rainstorm in New York kind of thing. But within the city grid that, like, if you do enough bad things, it'll come back to, like, fucking get you. Let's talk about 
the scene where <laughs> there's the two guys who have ripped off the Chinese bodega. Yeah. And there's like this cop who's like clearly on his first beat. He's trying to like mm-hmm. figure out what happened. And then like totally jacked out of his mind, Harvey Keitel comes in. Shoots, he's just come from the naked weeping scene. He's just come from the naked weeping scene. Shoots the window. Tells the mm-hmm. elderly Chinese guy to like go give a statement. Takes the money the two guys have stolen. Pockets it himself. Tells him to leave, and then looks at the, the the guy's young daughter who's still who's working at the bodega and hiding in the corner. That your dad will be back in a few minutes. While he's, by the way, ripping open like a pack of treats he hasn't paid for. <laughs> it's so like there. Part of me wanted so badly to hate this movie, but if you hang with it, like I mean, Kaitel's performance is just morbidly committed right to this to what's happening here like i mean you just get to see him sink and sink and sink and the further he sinks in some way the more it becomes like a dream the more real it actually becomes right. like you actually you, you see him more clearly i actually really liked the um the scene where i think he's just lost game six and he meets the bookie um, and you see him sort of like talking about like, I looked in Strawberry's eyes. I was at the game, which he wasn't. He's lying. Like he wants it to go seven. Like there was no way he was going to like hit that pitch. And it's one of the more striking portrayals of like self-deluded gambling addiction I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. What kind of actor would like go for this role? It was almost like De Niro stopped doing these roles in the eighties, and Kaitel was just like, "That wimp wouldn't go far enough." Right. Like, I know what my next fifteen years are gonna look like. Right? Yeah, De Niro's taking a breather until someone throws him uh, meet the parents. Yes. Apparently, he stayed in character for the eighteen days that this film was shot. That's brutal. That's so brutal. You can kind of feel that, though. Oh, definitely. But I just think it's such an interesting, it's like such a full body performance that he's giving that, Literally. I mean, it, it re- but it reminds me of De Niro in Taxi Driver as Travis Bickle, uh-huh. where you have this like slow descent into madness and then you still, and you have narratively that parallelism of like, what's the last like final good deed I can do before the other shoe drops, right? Yep, absolutely. And they have that, and then, I mean, Taxi Driver, quote-unquote, has, like, a happy ending, whereas this one does not. But I think I have to land on... Like I said, there were points... I mean, the the way this descent happens, if if you're, say, committed to watching it for a podcast, you are... You're harrowed. Oh, you're transfixed. Um, But... As it goes, I wanted to give it more and more credit in the realm of good bad. Like I think it did what it set out to do, and I think it was it's one of the more horrifying experiences you can have watching a movie on the way there. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't have like I would call Taxi Driver a good good movie because there's so many like moments of levity to it that mm-hmm. I think that like that's more watchable. But this one is better textures too. Better textures too. It's a longer movie, also. You know it. it it has a little bit more characters, more characters any more, other recognizable character. Right. And then it has more depth, certainly than this is just a character sketch over just over an hour. Um, yeah, but I still think what they accomplished was miraculous. And I yes. think it is like a great movie, but this is not a movie. Great? 
I think it's a great, it's like a, a, a really amazingly made film. Clearly they uh-huh. had like, and I was reading a little bit of the history of it too. They had like no permits. They just sort of shot it on the fly over 18 days. Keitel like didn't get any sleep, was completely in character the whole time. There were drugs all over the set and <laughs> they somehow pulled it off and it, it didn't like, it wasn't like stupid. And I think yeah. going back to our point about like the bad you know, noun or whatever. Like, this is, it takes those sort of, like, 90s law and order era, like, cop things and really, like, turns it on its ears. Like, what are these, what is Paul Sorvino? Like, cuts off its ear. Right, what is Paul Sorvino doing, like, in once the lawyers take over? Is it crack cocaine? <laughs> right, like, um, why don't you show us what happens when, like, once every five episodes, Jerry Orbach, like, alludes to his horrifying divorce. Right, like, Let, like let's if see the, the divorce. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it, like, it really, at the moment in which it was released, it really did, like, it really turned on its ear the idea of, like, this cop who's really, like, married to his job. And this guy is just obsessed with both his job and just, like, the lifestyle behind his job in a way that has, like, forced him to lose faith and ultimately seek redemption. And I think that's just, like, you know, for what they had and what they were going for, they turned out something miraculous. But on the other side of it, like, I'm not going to just – I'm never going to watch this movie again. (laughs) No. And if anybody ever asked if uh, if they should, I would give heavy, heavy warning. I mean, if they were like a cinephile or something who had never seen it, I think it's wa- worth watching for like the cultiness of it. Um, yeah. And now I'm really intrigued to see uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans. Have you seen it? I have not. Have you? I haven't either. No. Uh, that seems like a definite pod candidate right here. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to agree with you that it is quintessential good bad. Well, guys, if you want to catch up on past episodes of Be Real Guys, and we would love you to, uh, check out Be Real Guys Real, spelled double E's like a film reel, berealguys.com. For all our past episodes, you can listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Be Real Guys or Facebook as well, facebook.com backslash Be Real Guys. Yeah, past episodes are all there. We will have more coming to you in the future. I uh, hope you've been liking these evergreen episodes as we suffer through one of the worst years for film in recent memory. Yep. Um, but, uh, buddy? Pal? Uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah. You're my, uh, you're my best bad friend. Thanks, pal. And if you ever don't like what's on the radio, Chance, I beg you, please don't shoot it. <laughs> right. See you later. Bye. Bye.